You're listening to episode 39 of the Tennis Files podcast with special guest Todd Ellenbecker. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at newbalance.com. Welcome to the Tennis Files Podcast, bringing you advice from the top minds in tennis to help you improve your game. And now, here's your host, Mehrban Iranshad. Hey everybody, welcome to the Tennis Files Podcast, and I have the honor of interviewing Todd Ellenbecker, who is the Vice President of Medical Services for the ATP Tour. Uh, he's also the Director of uh, Physiotherapy Associates at Scottsdale Sports Clinic in Arizona. Um, he is a USPTA teaching professional, and he's also uh, certified in a whole bunch of uh, areas that I have no idea about, and I'm, I'm really happy to bring Todd on the show. Um, he also... Uh, is the author of several books, including one that I really love and have been talking about for a while now uh, called Complete Conditioning for Tennis. He, along with Dr. Mark Kovacs and Paul Rotert, wrote a wonderful book about um, how to really uh, improve your conditioning so you can be the best player that you can be on the tennis court. Todd has uh, also won uh, numerous awards in his field of work, including uh, the Ron Payton Award by the Sports Physical Therapy Section in 2007. Um, he received the uh, Turner A. Blackburn uh, Hall of Fame Lifetime Achievement Award from the Sports Physical Therapy Association in 2011. Um, and again, Todd, just thanks so much for coming on to the show today. Well, hey, thanks for having me. Definitely uh, an interesting topic. I know we're going to talk about injuries and whatnot, and so hopefully we'll have a very uh, uh, productive and interesting discussion. Oh, for sure, Todd. Thank you. Um, so I uh, just uh, wanted to get a sense of uh, your career path and how you ended up uh, where you are today in the sport. Well, um, interestingly, uh, I actually played tennis since the age I was since I was eight years old, and um, I was headed uh, like my father to uh, to actually be a pharmacist. I was in uh, school. I played high school tennis, played college tennis, and I was on the uh, track to become a pharmacist like my father. Uh, I thought it was a very interesting thing to do, and uh, my freshman year in college, I uh, hurt my shoulder uh, from overuse, which is one of the things we'll talk about. It's one of the more common injuries we see, and I fell victim to the same injury. And so uh, I was evaluated by an orthopedic surgeon who sent me to physical therapy. And uh, lo and behold, I watched what he did, and I thought, boy, this is pretty interesting. You're working with tennis players, working with runners, working with all types of athletes, doing exercises, stretching, different things to make them better. I thought, this is kind of interesting. I'm going to look into that. And so... Uh, I was very fortunate to be able to uh, study then in physical therapy, be accepted into therapy school, and then because of my background in tennis and uh, associations with Bill Norris from the ATP and Paul Rodert from the USTA, was able to pursue research and, and work in the sport of tennis, which has uh, been very meaningful and uh, important to me. Uh, I've also done a, a bit of research in the area, so it's, uh, it's fueled my desire, my passion, if you will, to, uh, to learn more about the body of a tennis player and why injuries occur and what adaptations the tennis player's body has. And so uh, much of my work has been centered kind of in that area, and it's kind of led to the positions that I have now. 
Oh, that's wonderful, Todd. And uh, I know that so many players have been benefiting from uh, all the uh, expert advice that you've uh, you've attained from uh, all your studies and work. And I'm just curious, you know, you've you've obviously got a, a ton of different letters in front of your name. I'm just wondering about, you know, the, the degrees and certifications that you that you have. Well, some of them are a little confusing, but um, for example, I'm a physical therapist and I have a doctorate of physical therapy. So that's what the DPT stands for. Uh, and then within the world of physical therapy. Um, we have certain areas that you can specialize in. If you work um, with small children uh, who are developing and whatnot, you may be a pediatric specialist. If you work with older people, you're a geriatric specialist, for example. And there are certain initials that go after your name based on what you do. Uh, and so I have certifications in orthopedics, which is what the OCS, that stands for Orthopedic Clinical Specialist, and then also in sports medicine, working with athletes, and that's what the SCS stands for. Uh, and then one other set of initials is CSCS, which stands for Certified Strength and Conditioning Specialist. And uh, that's a certification that you take that tells you that you have a, a demonstrated competency in strength and conditioning. And I think that's something that might be of interest to people on the call, because sometimes, depending on where you live, you may wonder, who can I go to to get quality advice for starting a strength program for either themselves in tennis or maybe their son or their daughter who plays volleyball or football or something like that? If you go to somebody who's a CSCS, you know that they have a certain level of competency in the area of strength and conditioning. And so each of those designations uh, do tell you something about what, what you maybe have a demonstrated competency in. I also am a USPTA master professional, something I'm very proud of, my affiliation with the USPTA, which is an excellent teaching uh, organization here in our country, United States. Uh, and I have that as well, which, again, says that I uh, am competent in teaching the sport of tennis and, and have knowledge in that area. Well, thank you for that, Todd, and uh, congratulations all, on all those accomplishments. Um, so before we dive into injuries, I just uh, I love hearing about the, uh, you know, the uniqueness of people. So what are three things that most of the world doesn't know about Todd Ellenbecker? Wow, you know, there's uh, there's probably not much to know about me. I'm a pretty basic guy. I mean, uh, like you said, we talked about I'm a physical therapist. I have a degree in exercise physiology. Um, I'm married. Uh, my wife, Gail, we've uh, been together 32 years, married. Uh, we love to travel. We've been, uh, fortunately, because of the work that I do, we've been able to travel to many nice places around the world and uh, and whatnot. So that's uh, that's been very positive. Um, I love dogs. I'm a big dog lover and whatnot. Don't have a dog right now, but uh, love dogs and uh, try to do work with animals and stuff like that. So I think that's uh, maybe a couple things people wouldn't know about me just by, uh, you know, reading something that I wrote or something. Excellent, Todd. All right. So now we're going to shift to um, the wide world of injuries. And this one is obviously a loaded question for you, but, um, you know, pretty basic. So why do tennis players get injured? Well, um, we can sum that up in basically one very kind of characteristic word, and that's the word overuse. Mm -hmm. uh, most of the injuries that we see in the sport of tennis are overuse injuries, meaning we don't, uh, unlike football players who might get a concussion from running into another player or hitting the ground or something like that, and it happens on one single event, tennis players typically get injured because they do the same thing repetitively over and over and over again. And so we call those injuries overuse injuries, um, and, and they occur simply because of the rep repetition that's required to get good and develop skill in the sport of tennis, and then when you play tennis successfully, uh, playing tournaments, practicing, training, all the things that go with it, um, you typically, because of that overuse, uh, you become injured, and so uh, many of the injuries in the sport of tennis occur to the tendon, which is how the muscles uh, actually are joined to the bones. 
And uh, because of that, they are in the format of what we would call an overuse injury. Interesting, Todd. So when you say overuse, that made me think, even if you have biomechanically efficient technique and everything's good in that area, you can still get injured um, if you uh, if you just simply overuse, uh, you know, those muscles. Absolutely. And, and that, that's very insightful because it's almost like we always say too much of a good thing sometimes isn't a good thing. And that's that's you know, that's why players don't play 60 or 70 tournaments uh, a year. That's why people don't practice 12 hours a day. Um, you know, there's certain limits to our physical capacity of playing tennis and hitting a tennis ball. And so there's a very fine balance between developing optimal skill um, and, and, and certainly developing into the best tennis player someone can be and having the optimal amount of recovery so that you don't fall victim to an injury. And so you, you bring up the importance of mechanics likely that's one of the single most important things to prevent injury is proper mechanics. And that's why learning the game, when people first learn, particularly as, as youngsters, they're taught proper technique. They develop good skill and biomechanics coupled with uh, proper exercise and, and development of the musculoskeletal system, the neurological system, et cetera. All those things help to prevent injuries as well as um, proper equipment, because if you go out and you have good technique and your muscles are fairly strong, but you have a racket that's very stiff, you have strings that are too tight and too stiff and unforgiving, you can become injured simply because your equipment isn't right. So all of those things, we like to think of them as multifactorial. All of those things add up into why somebody can have an injury. Excellent stuff, Todd. So you know, what are three of the most common injuries? And, you know, you mentioned the shoulder, but uh, what are the three most common injuries that you see on the tour today? Well, definitely the most common number one injury is the low back or the spine. We see a lot of low back uh, injuries, uh, neck injuries from overuse, uh, the, the perils of travel and flying on airplanes, sleeping overnight on a plane, and then having to play tennis the next day. Obviously very hard on the cervical spine, that being the neck. Um, but the low back is the, the number one injury that we see. There's so much uh, rotational stress that occurs in the area of the low back, and obviously the kinetic chain is, is how we develop power in tennis, and so we're always funneling power from the ground up through the legs, through the trunk or the core, if you will, and then to the arm and ultimately the ball. And so that the trunk is that, that very vital area that funnels a great deal of rotational power uh, through it, and so it's oftentimes subject to injury. The other one is the area of the shoulder. We see many different types of shoulder injuries, particularly problems with the rotator cuff. The rotator cuff tendons become injured. And then the third one is foot and ankle injuries because obviously we've got to get to the ball. And so tennis is a uh, multidirectionally um, uh, strenuous sport where we have to cut and move in multi-directions, a lot of friction on the lower body, friction with the uh, skin, uh, problems with the foot and ankle itself, again, because of the overuse. And so those are really kind of the three top areas that whether you look at junior tennis, when you, you read articles about professional tennis, be it uh, on the ATP or the WTA, those are three of the top categories of, of the injury locations that we see. Uh, have you seen a shift in uh, those types of injuries or, you know, comparing with 20 years ago, let's say, uh, were the injuries uh, of different areas? Yeah, the, the game has changed. Obviously, it's much more physical now. It's much faster. And for example, uh, just taking the shoulder, which would be the, you know, the number two most injured area. When you look at shoulder injuries, one of the things that in the older, you know, take, go back 20 to 30 years ago, one of the things that was very hard on the shoulder was the backhand. 
that was very stressful to the rotator cuff because if you hit a one-handed backhand, particularly a high one-handed backhand, be it a slice or coming over the top, there's a significant load to the shoulder, particularly if you don't use the legs and rotate properly and everything else. Well, in today's modern game, guess what usually isn't a factor? Hitting backhands with the shoulder. It's an actually a very well-tolerated skill uh, because of the two-handed backhand. So with the two-handed backhand, we see that the shoulder, the dominant shoulder, is your right-handed, right shoulder injury. One of the first strokes that people can go back and begin training is the two-handed backhand because it doesn't take nearly as much stress or load to hit a two-handed backhand as it did many years ago. But many years ago, when you look at some of the injuries 20 years ago to today, the area in the spine, the shoulder, the foot and ankle were still very high, highly injured joints for sure. But sometimes what causes them can be different. Excellent, Todd. And so, you know, you've obviously mentioned the shoulder uh, in one of the big areas that get injured. And so kind of what, what's the mindset or the approach that we should take in order to protect uh, the shoulder? Well, one of the biggest things is, uh, this, this goes for the whole body, but we'll talk specifically about the shoulder, but it does have a, a general theme, if you will, is many years ago, both recreational players or as well as, as fairly, you know, lower level elite players, the concept was, People would play tennis to get in shape. So the idea is that um, people didn't really do a lot of things to get ready for playing tennis. Mm -hmm. But now the idea is that you really need to get in shape to play tennis. So I think the biggest thing that can be done, particularly in the shoulder, is some level of preventative conditioning. And usually these mean things like using uh, TheraBands, for example, to strengthen the shoulder, uh, flexibility exercises, particularly something called the cross-arm stretch where you take the arm across the body before and after you play, or a sleeper stretch where you lay on your side like you're sleeping and, and kind of rotate your shoulder inward. We call that the sleeper stretch. Just some, some gentle stretching and some elastic resistance or TheraBand-type exercises to strengthen the muscles around your shoulder blade, also known as your scapula, and the rotator cuff are very, very important steps that truly every regular tennis players should be doing to prevent a shoulder injury. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of people who go to the gym, they go straight for the heavyweights and try to bench press and things like that. I'm just wondering, is it possible that these players are maybe ignoring, you know, kind of the smaller muscles and they're just not taking the right approach to lifting? Marabon, that's, that's very, very, you could be actually doing this interview of your, with yourself. I mean, that's, uh, you, you just hit the nail on the head. That's, uh, that's what most people, because a lot of times people ask me in an interview or something, you know, what's the biggest myth or what's the biggest thing that's done wrong by tennis players? And that typically is. They use too much weight, and when they go into a weight room, it's not their fault, but they go into a weight room, what do they see? They say football players, they see other types of athletes doing certain types of exercises, and typically, what do they think of? Oh, I'll do some bench press. I'll do some military press. I'll do some dips. Basically, all those, all those exercises work the muscles in the front of the body, the pecs and the bigger muscles are around the shoulder. And uh, unfortunately, those are muscles that are already strong in a tennis player. We don't need, you know, tennis players don't look like Arnold Schwarzenegger. When they take their shirts off after, they're pretty lean. They're certainly very, very lean. But they don't really have giant, giant muscles like the, the weightlifters and the, the football players and people like that. And so oftentimes the mistake that tennis players will make is that they use too much weight and they aren't working the small structural muscles that actually help to hold the shoulder together and position the scapula. And, and you say, well, okay, what muscles are we talking about? We're talking about the four rotator cuff muscles, 
We're talking about the trapezius, which is a scapular stabilizer. We're talking about the serratus anterior, the rhomboids, some muscles in the upper back. Those are muscles that to optimally contract or to optimally use those muscles and develop those muscles, you actually use very little amounts of weight, like the bands, the therabands and things like that, or a light weight, and you do it repetitively with a high number of repetitions. Remember, we talked about how tennis is, what we're trying to do is prevent overuse injuries. So we know that tennis is a very repetitive sport. And to combat that repetitive activation and whatnot, um, you want to prepare for it by doing a high volume program, meaning sometimes as high as like three or even more sets of 15 to 20 repetitions of exercises to try to stimulate and develop the muscles so that they not only have strength, but they also have endurance. I love that, Todd. Thank you so much for that information. Uh, very valuable. Um, another thing that uh, popped up in my head is, is there an optimal time uh, in regards to your training where you should be doing these exercises? Is it better to do them before you uh, play tennis on the court or after? Or what, what's the optimal scenario? Again, a, a, a superb question because this is something we find all the way to the best players in the world, all the way down to the recreational players. Is sometimes well intentioned from the well-intentioned standpoint, Players will say, hey, I want to, I, I heard that, that it's good to do these rotator cuff exercises. They'll start doing them right before they play. Oh, this is a good way to warm up. I'll use these bands on the court. The problem is, is that if you fatigue your rotator cuff and then try to go out and play tennis for two hours or even an hour, that's not really very sound. It's sort of like if somebody said they were going to run a marathon, they wouldn't start by running like uh, 10 miles to warm up for a marathon. They'd already be tired and it would impact their ability to run a marathon. So the idea, Maribon, is that we really want to make sure that we're doing the exercises for the shoulder after you play or on days that you don't play. So the idea is, let's say you're a morning tennis player, you could do your, do your uh, morning tennis, and in the afternoon you could go and actually do a shoulder prehab or preventative program after you play, middle of the afternoon, evening, whatever, and that would work very, very well to stimulate the muscles knowing that they would have time to recover before you would go and play the next day. Um, otherwise, if you can't do it after, sometimes you could do it before. You could get up and as a morning workout, you could do your shoulder exercises at 7 in the morning. If you're not going to play until noon, you still have four or five hours for the musculature to actually recover. That certainly would be acceptable. But typically, in a perfect world, we tell the athletes or the players to actually do the exercises after they play. That's the best time so that they're not overly fatigued or fatigued when they're actually trying to play tennis and do something with skill. Excellent. appreciate that advice. Um, I have a case study for you. Um, so I've got an email uh, recently from Ram who's in his 60s. And so the deal with him is he was out several months with a shoulder injury, and then he recently was able to play again. And then he went for a uh, big forehand and tore his rotator cuff. So this is obviously a really tough uh, position to be in mental, mentally and physically. So just kind of what advice would you give to Ram to help him um, eventually heal and get back on the court? Well, that, that's a great question. The, um, you know, for Ram, the, the key thing starts with a, a very, very detailed diagnosis. And when you're talking about somebody who believes they have a rotator cuff tear or has, has, has a suspicion that the rotator cuff is torn, you definitely want to have that evaluated by an orthopedic surgeon make sure that they can evaluate the shoulder, ensure they oftentimes will use an MRI, which allows them to see how, how significant the damage is to the tendon. If you think of most 60-year-old tennis players, 
If there's a very small, what we call a partial thickness tear, where the tendon is just basically fraying, but it's not torn all the way through, many, many individuals are great candidates for rehabilitation with somebody like myself, a physical therapist, to actually strengthen the rotator cuff tendon, to strengthen the scapular muscles, the muscles around the shoulder blade, make sure the range of motion is good, evaluate, of course, his technique, make sure that he's hitting the ball correctly, and they can go back to play tennis very, very successfully. However, in Ram's case, if he has a very large rotator cuff tear that's full thickness, meaning it's a complete full thickness rotator cuff tear, and he's already tried to come back after doing some exercise or maybe some therapy, in some individuals, they actually have to have a repair done by the orthopedic surgeon where they take the torn tendon and actually repair it back to the bone so that it can heal. And that's usually a six-month or more process of rehabilitation before individuals are back serving and playing tennis at a very high level. Uh, but either way, it starts with a key diagnosis. Once Ram knows exactly what's wrong, what the extent of the damage is to the rotator cuff, he'll be able to formulate a very good plan. And it's also something you don't want to go through on your own. You want to make sure that you get a good quality sports medicine orthopedic surgeon as well as a physical therapist who's knowledgeable in sports medicine, works with overhead athletes. You know, not everybody specializes in tennis. We can't expect that in our country for sure. But oftentimes going to somebody who works with a lot of throwers like baseball players, et cetera, they're typically therapists and individuals who are very good at dealing with tennis players because the movements of the shoulder in baseball and the movements of the shoulder in tennis are somewhat similar. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s-inspired style and cutting-edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high-energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Excellent, Todd. I appreciate that, and I'm sure Ram does as well. Um, another area uh, that you, you you actually did mention earlier was um, just kind of the the hip area. So that's very you know obviously important in the game. Um, for example, for me, you know, I, I had chondromalacia patella, which is uh, obviously a knee injury, but then I uh, now I have some uh, hip pain, and I was just wondering in general what type of uh, things tend to cause uh, hip pain in tennis players. Well, the hip is a very commonly injured area. It's not one of the top two or three, as we talked about. But uh, some of the key things with, uh, with the hip, both prevention and treatment of hip injuries, is the link and the very strong link to the core. And so probably one of the most significant things about tennis players who have hip pain is that we really want to evaluate their lower back and their core musculature. Because many times, if there's any weakness in the core, and if you think of players who are 30 years old, 40 years old, 50 year old, or even as old as Ram, who's 60 or whatever, um, typically most individuals will, will, will be very honest with you and say, you know what, my core isn't really as strong as it used to be. You know, when I was in college or when I was playing competitively on a regular basis, you know, I was doing some core workouts and stuff. But as we get busy in our jobs and people get busy and they love to play tennis, not necessarily train for tennis, one of the first things that people forget to do is work on their core. 
And so the core is something that provides a great amount of stability to the hip. It helps to stabilize the hip. It helps to control the hip movement. And so oftentimes that's where we start. Sometimes players don't have enough range of motion around their hip as well, and that's something that, again, we work with as far as getting flexibility, particularly of the two-joint muscles, as we call them, muscles that cross cross not only the hip but the knee, things like uh, the iliotibial band, the rectus femoris, the iliopsoas, you know, some of these muscles that actually cross a number of spans. We have several levels of vertebrae, several levels of the hip and knee. Those muscles, the hamstrings, those are muscles that oftentimes become very, very tight, and when they are limited, they alter the movement pattern and can affect either the hip or the knee joint as well. Yes, Todd. I've, I really um, I feel extreme tightness in my IT band at times, so I definitely try to stretch that out uh, quite a bit. Um, I, you know, I got a bunch of questions from our audience uh, in regards to the on-court type of activities uh, when the players called trainers out. So I was wondering, first off, uh, Todd, are you ever the person who goes out on the court during a medical timeout? Well, yes, actually, the um, I, w- I work for the ATP, and it's uh, just this is some clarification too, because this is something that comes up a lot. Is uh, on the ATP World Tour. All of the uh, individuals in sports medicine that we have that run out onto the court or work with the players behind the scenes, they're all physical therapists or what we refer to as physios. You say, well, what's the difference between a physical therapist and a physiotherapist? There is no difference. Basically, it's what country you're living in or what country you grew up in as to what you refer to them as. A physiotherapist is basically a physical therapist in uh, that's what we call them in America. And so we're actually known probably when you think worldwide, we're known more as physiotherapists. But anyway, back to the question, the ATP physios actually do. We run out onto the court. Uh, we're asked, you know, we're called by the umpire. The player is uh, obviously has some type of uh, illness or injury, and we're called to the court uh, to, to uh, work with players. Personally, I don't do that that often. I, my role at the ATP is um, its vice president is uh, involved more with the prevention of injuries, some of the treatment in the training room, but particularly of a preventative injury program that we have where we evaluate players, we give them preventative exercise programs, we follow their, their training and their, uh, their conditioning, if you will. Um, personally, that's my role, but um, of the 16 physios, we have 16 physical therapists or physiotherapists on the tour. All of us have been involved with uh, medical timeouts in some way, shape, or form, uh, and it's a very regular part of what most of our physiotherapists are involved in. Excellent. And so, uh, you know, the type of injuries that you mentioned earlier in the show, are are those uh, also kind of the most commonly treat, uh, common ones that the players ask for on court? Yeah, it, it can be a very wide variety. But, for example, you know, tightness in the low back, discomfort around the hip, uh, there's many, many things. And, and the beauty of, uh, you know, and both the challenge and the beauty of the medical timeout is it's very public. Um, you know, the general public, the tennis fan can see exactly what it is that we do. You know, it's, uh, you know, we go out, if you see us looking at the player's low back, if we have them lay on their stomach and we're doing some pressing on the low back, that's exactly what it is. Most of the time, the player is having some tightness or some pain in the low back area and we're treating. You may say that you may see the player remove their shirt and the physio is doing some range of motion on the shoulder and maybe taking some form of, uh, hot cream or some type of cream to actually uh, rub the shoulder and, and, and decrease pain and spasm around the muscles. Um, that's another thing that's very commonly done. And again, play, uh, tennis fans who are very interested, if they watch what the physio is doing, they can gain a lot of interest and uh, certainly information into what's wrong with that particular player. 
Sure. And, you know, this is, uh, I guess, maybe a somewhat contentious question, but Brandon was wondering um, with these medical timeouts, um, just how often um, you think they are used for gamesmanship and uh, generally how is a trainer supposed to respond if they sense this? Yeah, that, that's, a, that's a very good question because everybody could kind of think, oh, yeah, if a player's tired, you can just sit down and then wait for somebody to come and, and do a massage on him or something like that. The advantage with the ATP and the WTA, for that matter, is that uh, as physios, we know the players very well. And so um, we're also experts in tennis injuries. And so that's why you see when the uh, physio first goes out onto the court, they don't immediately begin treating the individual. What's the first step? The first step is the evaluation. And so it's very uh, probably one of the most important things that we do is to basically talk to the player, get an understanding of what's actually going on with the player, it may or may not have been something that's come up before with the player. They may have been treating them before they went out for their match or, or talked to them about this particular injury. And so the physio, because we know the players at a very, very high level, is very quickly able to actually identify that, yes, indeed, this is an injury and this is something that we can treat in the three-minute medical timeout versus something that is not an injury or not something that we would be able to influence uh, in a three-minute medical timeout. Wow, very insightful. So our, our audience um, is just, uh, they're so glad that you're on the show because we've obviously gotten questions about players being injured and such. And so um, what are some of your favorite uh, tools and equipment? Uh, you mentioned the TheraBand, but what are some of your favorite uh, tools and equipment we can use to prevent injuries? Well, um, another great question. Absolutely. I think for tennis players, when we're talking, let's say, just about the shoulder, one of, the, one of the greatest tools you can have is a piece of elastic tubing, or TheraBand as it's called by its trademark. But uh, the advantage with that is that you can change the resistance simply by elongating the device. So if you're working your elbow and you need a certain level of tension, you can do that. If you need less tension for your shoulder, you can elongate the band less and be able to use it. And so the bands are particularly popular. The other thing about tennis players is we're a bit nomadic. So we travel all over the world. We go from club to club to tournament to tournament and things like that. And so using equipment isn't always feasible or expecting there to be a, uh, equipment. Even a businessman, for example, who happens to be a tennis player but travels a lot for his work, you know, one week you're in a Holiday Inn Express and there may be great equipment and all sorts of stuff. And the next week you could be at another totally different hotel and there's absolutely no equipment that's useful. So you can't always rely on what's around you. So basically you can bring your gym with you. And so the uh, TheraBands make it very effective and very helpful for uh, – for exercising while you're on the road or while you're in different uh, places, regardless of where it is in the world and whatever uh, you have available, you can always tie it to a door or tie, tie it to an object and be able to do exercises. Another very good uh, device is a small medicine ball, like a half kilogram or a kilogram. There's a lot of great exercises you can do for your shoulder, for your elbow, uh, exercises for your core. Uh, you can mimic tennis patterns, forehands, backhands, different things like that. Uh, with a medicine ball. And so I think medicine ball training is very good. Uh, again, it's something that's fairly easy to travel with as long as they're not the big giant ones. Those are kind of hard to, to get on a plane and whatnot. But uh, that's something that's very, very helpful. So I think the medicine balls and the elastic resistance are two tools that I think are very, very helpful for players for many different types of preventative conditioning. Excellent, Todd. And I just want to, you know, again, mention uh, Complete Conditioning for Tennis Players, uh, authored by uh, Dr. Mark Kovacs, for, uh, uh, which, who was on episode 33, and, and Todd uh, and Paul Rochard. And that that book, I really think you should get that book because it has so many amazing exercises. Um, it, it shows you how to diagnose basically what areas you need to work on 
uh, in your game and your fitness, uh, particularly, and then shows you a ton of exercises um, and has videos on them as well. Uh, and I've constructed my own exercise program. And so a lot of what, um, you know, Paula, uh, Todd is talking about today, you can refer to that book and, and, uh, help yourself by choosing so many, uh, of the exercises there. Um, but Todd, if you were to sum up, you know, what, uh, three things that amateur t- tennis players could do to, um, prevent, uh, injuries, uh, what would, what would you say? Well, I think, uh, the, the number one thing to prevent an injury is learn how to hit the ball properly. So, uh, seek out your USPTA tennis teaching professional or, whoever's in your particular area that is competent in the biomechanics of tennis, learn to hit the ball properly. That's a, it's a great skill. Just like in golf, you know, develop a great swing and you're going to enjoy the game and you're going to do well. The same is true in tennis. Develop the strokes, hit the ball properly. It's a wonderful thing to strive to have very good mechanics and to have somebody, a coach and professional there helping you to do that. Number two, make sure that you do preventative types of exercise. Get in shape to play tennis. Make sure that you get some level of cardiovascular fitness so that you're not tired after 10, 15 minutes of hitting and then you're not running to get to the ball or moving to get to the ball properly and then an injury occurs. Also, work the shoulder and the upper back. Those are particularly weak areas in tennis players. Even though we use those muscles all the time, they tend to break down over time. And so using exercises for elastic resistance, as I mentioned, um, there's a number of different resources. Um, you've been very kind to kind of talk about our book. We have a whole chapter on shoulder stability in there that we would recommend doing those types of exercises. The other thing is to prepare for tennis. So we talk about not only preparing before, but also recovering after. So if you, uh, there's a great body of knowledge out now in today's time, and this is something that's changed in 20 or 30 years, uh, that now we don't really recommend a lot of static stretching immediately before playing tennis. And the reason is the static stretching actually can cause a short-term decrease in the strength and power that a muscle can actually provide. And so the old adage of stretching immediately before you walk on a tennis court or immediately before you run a race or whatever it may be um, is actually not being utilized today. We actually aspire to do more dynamic warm-ups where you actually mimic the movements in tennis. You maybe jog in place. You maybe do high leg kicking, butt kicks. Uh, different types of rotational movements with the hips, with the shoulders, with the trunk. And we have a whole chapter in our book as well on the dynamic uh, flexibility. So that's a great way to prepare. And then lastly, one of the things is to allow yourself to recover. You mentioned a minute ago, Maribon, that you had some tightness in your IT band. I don't know if you've been able to try foam rolling, but a foam roller is about a three-foot-long, uh, six-inch in diameter type of foot piece of foam that many high-level athletes at ATP tournaments and, and, and colleges and whatnot, that athletes actually use for recovery because not everybody has a private masseuse who can get a massage at any given time. So the idea is that the, uh, the foam roll can be very effective. David Bame's research from Canada has shown some very, very good and powerful benefits from the use of foam rolling on the soft tissues. And so rolling the IT band, rolling the quads, rolling the hamstrings, et cetera, those would be very, very good recovery techniques to allow you to recover for the next match very effectively. Fantastic. I uh, really appreciate that. I know you have to run in a minute, so I'm going to ask you only one more quick question, which is uh, college coach Doug, he he has a big problem with his uh, team getting shin splints. And what kind of uh, advice would you have for him on that? 
Well, shin splints are interesting in, in, in almost every sport. Um, they can happen when you transition from one surface to another. For example, you play, let's say, when I was a kid and we play high school, you play football on the grass, and then as soon as it got cold and snowy, you'd be in the gym floor, you know, uh, in, the, in the gym playing basketball on a hard surface, and guys would maybe get shin splints because of changing from something soft like grass to something hard like a gym floor. Uh, but more often than not, in the sport of tennis, um, a lot of times it's because of either inadequate shoe uh, wear and they're not changing them enough or improper shoes that are being used or that the athletes, the individuals that are actually having the shin splints, actually have a lot of pronation or flattening of the foot. What we know with shin splints is that it actually occurs when the foot flattens and you get this eccentric or lengthening pull on the muscle that goes up and down the inside of the shin and it feels like a very sharp, uh, very uh, significant pain along the inside of the shins. And one of the first things we uh, try is to put an orthotic device and or change the shoe. <clears throat> if the shoes are very good, well, we usually try the orthotic. And orthotics in the old days used to be something that was $600 and it was custom and it took weeks to build and everything else. But in today's time with great technology, there's a number of very, very good over-the-counter orthotic devices that can be purchased uh, from healthcare providers and high-end pro shops, whatever, that actually come with a medium amount of arch support which helps to keep the arch from collapse, collapsing and helps address the pronation and hence will also help the shin splints. And so one of the first ways that we prevent and or treat shin splints is to go after the biomechanics. If we fix the biomechanics, meaning the excessive pronation, and that can be from changing the shoes, the orthotic, et cetera, um, that usually helps. The other things we look at are to be sure that his team is actually stretching their calf muscles because if your calf muscles are tight, sometimes that makes you pronate even more. So you want to make sure that he's doing, after practice, a lot of stretching of the, the gastroc and soleus, which are the calf muscles. Uh, and then lastly, if anybody has shin splints already, one of the things we use is a lot of ice. And we do that by taking Dixie cups and freezing them uh, and then just peeling back the paper and then just rubbing the ice directly on the shins after every tennis practice, after every run, after every, every, everything that would aggravate them. We actually use a lot of ice in that manner, and that does help to, to reduce some of the acute symptoms of the shin splints as well, but, as well. but really the, the, the crux of the matter, if you will, is to get at the biomechanics and be sure that either an orthotic is given, just an over-the-counter at first uh, for trial or improvement with the shoe, because as tennis players, a lot of times we love those shoes, they get a little bit comfortable, they're a little worn out, they feel good still, but they aren't supporting the foot the way they should, so tennis shoes should be looked at by a healthcare professional, somebody who's having shin splints, a lot of times that can be a good recommendation as well. Wonderful, Todd. Where, where can our audience uh, find you online or in person? Well, uh, I don't actually have any kind of formal websites or anything like that, but uh, probably the best way, you certainly can Google me and you can find some of my uh, uh, emails that if they have a question or something like that or are looking for information, some of the books that I've written or the resources, the publications that I have, uh, by just putting my name in Google. It's, uh, it's a beautiful thing. You can use Google to find all sorts of stuff now, and um, certainly no exception with uh, trying to access some of the work that I've done and whatnot for individuals, because uh, it's always great if you put together things that you want people to read, if people are able to benefit from them, and that's a great thing if it does happen. Wonderful, Todd. We'll include all those resources in the show notes as well. Um, so I, th I want to thank you so much. Uh, you've given so much uh, amazing advice for our audience, and I can't thank you enough for all the work you're, you've been doing for, uh, for countless uh, players and people and helping them living uh, healthier and more productive lives. So thanks so much, Todd, for being on the Tennis Files podcast, and we uh, hope to speak with you again someday. Fantastic. Thanks for having me. Have a great day. You too, Todd. Thanks. Bye-bye. Okay, Take care. Bye.
All right. I hope you all enjoyed my interview with Todd Ellenbecker. Uh, Todd, thanks so much for coming on to the show and enlightening us about what we can do to prevent injuries and uh, you know come back strong uh, if we do have the misfortune of having them. Um, I really would appreciate it if you all would leave a review for the Tennis Files podcast, um, whether that's in iTunes or whichever uh, podcast app you use to listen to the show. Um, thanks so much for that in advance. Um, I'd like to leave you all with a quote, as I often like to do at the end of the show. And this one is a very uh, brief, concise one. And it's actually by Desiderius Erasmus. Um, my, my dad always said this quote uh, to me. You know, I looked it up just to make sure to give the proper credit where credit is due. And, and he said, prevention is better than cure. And if you're wondering, uh, Mr. Erasmus was a Dutch Renaissance humanist, Catholic priest, social critic, teacher, and theologian. Thank God for Wikipedia. All right, everyone. Thanks so much for listening to the show. And I look forward to having you tune in to the next episode of the Tennis Files podcast. Take care, guys. Thanks for listening to the Tennis Files podcast. For more tips to help you improve your tennis game, visit TennisFiles.com.